And welcome back to the RegTech Legends podcast. I am your host, Tom Richardson. And today we're going to be continuing with the theme from last week of Know Your Business, KYB. And with that in mind, delighted to be joined by Alex Pillow from Moody's Analytics, regular host and first time guest. So very, very pleased to meet you. Susan White, Managing Director of Americas for Company, Company with a K. Susan, for thank you so much for joining us. For the benefit of the listeners that have not had the pleasure of meeting you before, maybe you could just let us know a little bit about your, your journey into this industry and how you found yourself working at company. I spent 20 years at Bloomberg in senior leadership roles. The last six years that I was there, I was working in a, our KYC division. This was a startup within Bloomberg. And I was the fifth employee. And I had the luxury of interviewing both buy side and sell side clients around what the challenges were associated with onboarding and AML screening. And there were a couple of things that bubbled up through that process. And we developed solutions that were tailored to our global banks, broker dealers, hedge funds, asset managers, as it related to the challenges that they had. And fast forward to 2019, we lost our funding, unfortunately, and we wound down the business. And I was asked to stay to unwind that business. But I have to say that while we were developing our products, what really struck me is that clients had a strong desire and need for data and documents. Actual real-time, time-stamped, validated documentary evidence. And so when I decided to leave, I knew that I wanted to work for a company that was involved in KYC, KYB, and AML. And I decided to basically, you know, leave without having a job because I was so in love with this space. And if Bloomberg wasn't going to do it, I didn't want to be at Bloomberg anymore. And in December of 2019, I was sitting in a cafe and I was telling all of this to a friend of mine and saying that I wanted to work for a company that was based outside of the United States who was looking to accelerate their business, but was really focused on KYB, KYC, AML. And as this gentleman who was sitting next to us got up to leave, he he told me that he overheard our conversation and couldn't help but introduce himself because he was the CEO and co-founder of a company based in Austria that was focused on KYB. And yeah. yes, That's <laughs> yes. So Russell Perry hands me his card and I met with him in December over Skype. And at that stage, they weren't looking to expand too much into the United States. But he said, if you ever come over to Austria, you should come and visit if you're in Vienna. And since I didn't have a job and we were, my husband and I wanted to go to England and then go over to Austria, we decided to visit with them. 
And I spent a full day and we decided to move forward. And I started to work for company the day that New York went on lockdown. Oh, (laughs) that's uh, phenomenal timing uh, and coincidence on a number of levels, isn't it? Yeah, it's 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 quite um, a serendipitous uh, Mm. story. So a pretty extraordinary story of how you actually joined company. But for anyone who, uh, God forbid, isn't familiar with the organization, company with a K, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about what they do. So why did I join? Why did you join? An even better place to start. I joined company because of the veracity of the data and documents that they provide for institutions, that obliged institutions in in the UK and just institutions globally who have a regulatory mandate as it relates to having time-stamped audit-proof data from the source. And we are the backbone for some compliance platforms as well as a direct feed for some of the global banks and other financial institutions. What drew me to the company is the the dedication to having having real-time primary sourced information. And we operate a real-time network of registers that um, entities use to uh, validate during the onboarding process and to monitor ongoing risk. And again, it's the primary source timestamp documentary evidence that can withstand regulatory scrutiny that drew me to this this business. Stephen, you know, I think most of the listeners that that listen to a podcast called RegTech Legends will probably know what KYB means. But for those that maybe have tuned in for the first time, do you mind just sort of giving your quick definition what what that stands for and then what that means in practice? Sure. Um, KYB is, is part of customer due diligence and is done at the earliest stages of the relationship with a, um, with a counterparty. And it involves the verification of information as they build their customer identification program for that particular entity. And that includes uh, collecting information like customer name, address, registration number, incorporation date, um, current status, legal type, and also collecting documentation things like certificate of incorporation, um, certificate of good standing. In some cases, there's the need to collect some um, personal information for some of the uh, key leaders at those institutions. Typically, directors, shareholders, and I'm sure we'll get on to the uh, the beneficial owner discussion as we go through today. Um, I guess the, the natural next question would be, you know, why is it important? You know, why, why can't company A work with company B and just get on with it? You know, why is KYB or Know Your Business such such an integral part of the, the risk controls that businesses need to have in place? KYB is, is 
the first point of entry with an entity. And if you do not get that right, it can affect, it can affect everything that you do downstream with that particular, uh, with that, that particular customer, including some of the UBO checks, including um, transaction monitoring, all of the systems that are fed with the data that's collected at the earliest stages can really um, can really wreak havoc downstream in downstream applications. Uh, absolutely, I know. Tom, you, you know, I've said come from the name screening world, but the last couple of years I've worked a lot with with this data at, at Moody's in terms of the business data, and it's as Susan says, if you get that bit wrong, it's going to be really really tough to do anything else right. You know, bad input equals good, uh, sorry, equals bad output. Um, so yeah, couldn't agree with you more. I think the the other point that I'll typically make to people who are sort of questioning why they have to do this or even, you know, people not in this industry who then ask me what I do and well, why the hell does anyone focus on that? Is that if you are doing major illicit activity, you know, not sort of a few hundred pounds here, a few hundred pounds there, et cetera, but, um, or dollars or euros or whatever, but you are trying to make mega moves and make this your career, then you're going to do it through some sort of company structure, some sort of shell companies or, or, uh, front companies probably a better better phrase and so this is sort of really the first line of defense um against stopping that if you're a legitimate bank corporate fintech even government um so yeah it's it really is a critical part of of the controls you can put in place Can I ask what might be a silly question? You can uh, let me know if it is. <laughs> Feel free. But, so when, when you talk about ongoing monitoring, do you, does, does that mean that you're monitoring for uh, changes and being notified of them instantaneously? Or do you mean we're constantly rechecking the names? Uh, yeah. Like say once a week, once a month or, or whatever. Well, there would have to be some sort of periodic check because there aren't pushes from the actual registers. It would be nice if the commercial registers pushed out that information, but you know, it, that can be done on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. And we will kick out the deltas associated with name, address, status, um, in some cases, shareholder data. But I, Alex and I were talking recently about the fact that you know, this has been well done. Monitoring has and surfacing deltas for uh, the AML screening process. So for PEP sanctions and adverse media, that's been widely adopted in the um, in the industry. But I am not seeing widespread adoption as it relates to entity verification. And that is what I would like to see because I think we get to the point of perpetual um, KYB, and it eliminates the need for the periodic reviews that organizations need to do on their own or any remediation projects that they might have. And you know, organizations spend millions mm -hmm. upon millions of dollars doing, throw, I personally think they're just throwing money away 
by doing these remediation projects when they could put in place, and some some are moving in this direction, a, a the ability to monitor all aspects of the entity. Uh, Alex, you look like you're about to. Yeah, say no, I, <laughs> I suppose mainly to agree with you, uh, which isn't always you no. Know, sometimes isn't always the most interesting thing. Obviously, uh, you you kind of said it, but just agree that. On the AML screen, like you said, this has been around a long time. Tom and I covered that, I think, episodes four and five, or, or one of those two, where we talked about that with uh, with Mike Harris, that monitoring is nothing new, but there are so, still some banks and institutions that still need to get with the programme. Um, but most, for the most part, people have moved in that direction. I think what's interesting here, as you mentioned, they are literally spending millions. And I sometimes question, is that because they want to or because certain consultants might be in their ear telling them this is the way to do it because it makes them a lot of money um sorry to any consultants that are listening and are going to tell me that i'm wrong and there's a real reason but i'd love to hear it um yeah i, I couldn't agree more season the period periodic refresh typically what what is it every one three five years is the typical program across high medium low risk you could replace with a reason reasonably short effort to bring in the right technology um, companies certainly, you know, part of that solution. Yeah, by the time they identify the risk in their in in their portfolio, it, it the damage could be done. Um, exactly. you know, it, it, checking based on on risk in one, two, three years is is uh, I I think a um, a losing recipe. Yeah. I <laughs> I um, I met with years ago. While I was still at Bloomberg, I met with a um, a broker dealer, and we sat down with the broker dealer, and we were talking about you know what their whole process was, their onboarding process, what they were doing, what sort of documents they were collecting, what their challenges were, and then we asked them about their periodic reviews. <laughs> Didn't exist. Yeah, they were not doing periodic reviews at all, which to my mind is, is uh, you know, certainly, uh, you know, they were definitely exposed by not doing that. And it was probably good that I was not a regulator. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the, uh, the thing to sort of always, you know, to bring it back to you, know, why, why is this stuff important? Say it's a preventative tool, we're trying to prevent financial crime, illicit activity, terrorist financing, human trafficking is a big one we talk about uh, internally. Um, but then, then the question comes, right? Should, should you do enough that you get a, a tick in the box from whatever regulator, wherever you are in the world, and we know there are different standards, or do you have corporate responsibility and business ethics? And you say, I'm going to do the absolute best I can with the resources that I have or that I can, you know, or that I can purchase for you know, a budget that I have. And, and really try and play my part. Um, and I think that's always the worrying thing is that uh, are people doing that or are they just trying to do the bare minimum? Um, I like to think, and most people that I meet in the profession who seem to want to do that to the best they can, how they get that approved and budgets approved and how they keep up to pace with the, you know, the, the reg tech sector and know what, know what they could be doing, I think is another challenge, but someone we you started this podcast that was part of it right is trying yeah. to people in the loop a bit more um because they have day jobs and they can't spend all their time on, on calls with vendors 
a wider understanding of why people do the things that they do and, and the technology that's available to them, I think, is is an important part of it, isn't it? I was intrigued to actually ask you both. Um, so you, you talk to organisations uh, about this and proposing solutions all of the time. Um, obviously, you're not going to be able to name any names, but are there any incidents of, um, of, of uh, are there any, I might have to get the wording on this right, but are there any anecdotes about what has been uncovered um, by conducting these periodic reviews um, that are kind of noteworthy? Absolutely. Um, whether we're talking company data um, or, you know, and, and beneficial ownership and networks, or whether we're talking about the, the sanction pet adverse media screening stuff that I've, you know, lived, um, put aside periodic reviews, I'll just talk about when we go in and do an exercise to maybe try and displace an existing technology or system. And yeah. we go, okay, give us, give us 1% of your book and we'll put that through and then we'll look at the results and we can compare or, or yeah, you know, try and, you know, that proof of value. And some of the stuff you find that, that was missed. Really? It's, it's unbelievable. Uh, people with clear, you know, terrorist links, terrorist-related activity links, uh, human traffickers, as I said, is a big one that we look at because human trafficking is the precursor to, you know, sexual exploitation, you know, modern slavery, uh, often pretty obscene, you know, ch you know, child abuse stuff that, you know, hits everyone pretty hard um, when they read about it or see it. And it's because the right systems weren't in place, the right coverage wasn't in place. As I say, where it gets interesting with this company stuff is that the most sophisticated criminals use company structures and entities as their front. And the only way that you can actually prevent them from using your organization's services, whether that be financial or something, something else, is to make sure you know everyone that's involved in this network and are running the right checks and the right due diligence. Susan mentioned at the start, this is all, everything we're talking about is part of an overall customer due diligence or third-party due diligence program that the organization should have in place. The goal, I think, and Susan will probably agree, with company or any company in this space, um, <laughs> sorry about that, gonna get confused now with the keep saying company. Is the uh, is to make that process that process fast enough that it, it can work in a business setting. Um, you know, you can't have someone sitting there doing it manually because it just takes too long. Eventually, you need to to get on doing business. Um, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe we can talk about that a little bit more. But I'll pause and let Susan get a word in. Actually, I just had a question for you. The did you find that most of what you uncovered in relation to um, the companies that you were talking to was really around the adverse media piece, or did you find gaps in their PEP evaluations? Because I, I know that there are a lot of gaps that exist with PEPs and not the proper risk scoring. Maybe we're going down a different rabbit hole here, but it's something that I have an interest in and I would be curious to hear what, what your thoughts are. It, it, it's both. It's both. I, adverse media, I think the bar has been quite low for a long time. Law, law organizations either don't do it or they only do it for high risk. And then when you screen their medium and low risk, you find a bunch of stuff that should have meant they were marked as high um and you know that's good for us because of what we do and we can go right let's put a program in place and and help you rectify that um 
Perhaps come up, you know, all the time. Um, it's a constantly changing political world, and the databases take a lot of time, effort, resource to keep up to date. Uh, but with the right structure, with the right lens, and when you know what types of perhaps you're looking for, and how senior and the risk levels, you can start to get quite clever about it. The thing I'd say on PEPs, though, is that from the various stats I've looked at over the last five, six years, it's only like three, four percent of PEPs that have adverse media as well, where they are known to be, uh, you know, some way corrupt or have some other risks associated. I would then assume there's probably another three or four percent that just haven't been caught yet. But the vast majority are just public servants doing their best. Um, we can all shout at the TV or the newspaper or wherever we get our news and say you're not doing well enough. But most of them, you know, I, I don't think they are the, the biggest risk to uh, to the financial system or, or to the to society as a whole. Um, so I would do that. I think the the next level though is, is this this KYB process. It's okay, great. That's when you know the names, but what about the names you don't know because you haven't done a proper assessment or discovery on which business is owned by which business, which is owned by who exactly and get into that, that ultimate beneficial owner or um, even, even those that are connected to that ultimate beneficial owner. And you can go as, as deep as you need to within that risk-based approach. But that's where um, yeah, I would argue it starts to get more interesting because that's where the, what I call the sort of proper criminals <laughs> or proper uh, bad actors sort of live is, is in a quite clever networks. I think, I think we've established the importance of doing these checks then. Um, how are companies doing it today? Yeah, it, it, for the most part, m most organizations don't have this automated. They don't have the, the checks of the entity verification piece or the beneficial ownership register checks automated. They actually have analysts who are going out and collecting that information. In many cases, they, if there is a salesperson involved, they're asked to go back to their client to collect data and documents. It's extremely inefficient. It causes a lot of friction internally, and it causes friction with the uh, potential clients as well. And so there, there are knock-on effects to the manual process in that it can take, there, it's estimated that it takes somewhere around six weeks to onboard an entity client when that time could be cut in half or a third if you're relying on organizations like company who have the network of registers, which will keep you from actually having to go back to the client. You're, you're, you're going directly to the primary source. You're pulling in the data and documents from the primary source. It reduces the friction and it re reduces the time to um, revenue, basically for the, um, the institution. I wonder, are there any observations you've made about industries that seem to be doing this better than others? Or I'm, worse than others? Well, I, I think the neobanks, because they're focused on banking as a service, um, they are focused on technology, 
I think that they've done a better job historically. Um, this is historically, I mean, historically, it's, uh, you know, five years. Um, and I think they've done a, a, a much better job in uh, speeding up the process, which yeah. also is uh, a threat to some of the large global institutions that have legacy systems that are still relying on manual processes. Yeah. Is it, uh, is it the Brian Tang quote that um, the key to keeping FinTech elegant is RegTech? Did I, did I get that right? I, I like that quote. I, I hadn't heard it before. It's, it's symbiotic, right? The, the, the FinTechs wanted to operate or the neobanks wanted to operate at a speed that yeah. traditional finance hadn't really cared for before that created a demand and regular companies sprung up to try and fulfill that and go faster, but with the right level of precision and, you know, better ways of achieving the, the same outcome of effectively keeping the regulator happy and hopefully preventing and mitigating risk. Yeah. Um, yeah. And now it, it feeds both ways that the company that has the best reg tech stack will have a competitive advantage because they can be compliant. But as Susan said, in a, in a faster way that reduces their time to value with their customers and pleases their customers. There's a good stat out from a former employer of mine, Passport. They did a report on, um, I think it's, a, I can't remember the exact stat, but if you give a better onboarding experience, the customer loyalty actually goes up. So not only do you reduce time to value, you increase customer lifetime as well. Retention, yeah. yeah and obviously the more time you're working with them, the more, more that should drive revenue for you as well. Um, so it, it all goes together. Um, I think typically I see the financial institutions are trying to do this well. There are just some that move a lot more slowly than others in making change because it's it's hard when it's a bigger organisation or not actually because it's bigger, but maybe more political and more committees and more barriers to, to getting stuff done. But there's also industries that are only more recently coming to realise that they're obligated entities. If you think about real estate, you think about professional services, you know, law firms, accountancy, the, what sometimes are called professional enablers of crime. Um, obviously not all of them, but the ones that do. Um, those guys, the, the, the heat's turning up slightly as the, the fifth money laundering directive, the sixth in, in the EU and the AML uh, Act 2020 in the US starts to bring a bit more pressure on these, these other types of companies who, who are going to need to bring these, these processes in place. I'd urge them to to leapfrog and not do it the manual way or the uh the slow way or the i hate questionnaires because it's self-declared information very easy to lie on a questionnaire i always think go to a, either the primary source or if that's not available then use a trusted third party who've done the work um and do it professionally rather than you know trusting john in onboarding who's only got the tools that he's got available it's not his fault if you give him a, a bad process he, he can't be held to account really on the result. Um, so yeah, I think, I think all of those those sectors are going to need to, to step up and I'd echo Susan, direct them to look at what how some of the neobanks are doing it and then find what works for them or what flavour of that works for them. You uh, mentioned real estate. Obviously, that's something that uh, appears in the press from time to time, doesn't it? I, I wonder if you were to plot a graph where uh, you have the lines of where the problem is biggest and where the current way of doing things, the current standard 
of uh, of checks is is kind of maybe most basic uh where what what companies would we see there would it be real estate or i think it'd be in the mix you know i can't say definitively what what, what do you think susan well it's interesting because you were talking about the professional enablers and mm. i think it's not just you know real estate although certainly around the globe uh in in including the UK and including the United States, shell companies have been created, money has been funneled. Um, You know, the US is a huge tax haven, really for the world's rich. And, you know, uh, maybe I'll get myself into trouble here, but, you know, it's very easy to create a shell company here in the US and then purchase real estate through that shell company. And, you know, you pointed out that the, Alex, that the AML directives, um, some of them are are trying to close those loopholes with the professional enablers. I would say even with the AML Act of 2020 and the Corporate Transparency Act and the creation of the uh, UBO centralized register, we're still not addressing those professional enablers here in the US. And so it's still a problem. Yeah, yeah, it's to your point on the, the intersection of where it is. I, though it's easy for me to say, I'm not under pressure to hit whatever target in these organizations. But if I have someone says, hey, I want to buy this, this luxury property and I want to buy it through this company, and I go, okay, and I'm going to run the check and I go, oh, this company doesn't tell me who owns it. To me, I'd be like red flag, escalate, maybe submit a suspicious activity, file into the relevant person because there's no reason to do that unless you're trying to hide something, right? That that seems fairly logical. Um, and there's these, uh, I forget what they're called, um, there's, there's businesses that are set up to set up, uh, what are they called, formation companies or something? Yes. But they're, yeah. yeah. Companies that just set up other companies as a service. And if you follow uh, Graham Barrow, who also runs a, a good podcast, Dark Money Files, he does. Um, on LinkedIn, then he talks a lot about those entities and the fact that, hey, if the same address keeps coming up, it can't be can't be hosting 2,000 companies. Yeah. Right? But, it, but it is on paper. So again, that should be a red flag. Um, and I guess that's where, why I hope to see with the, the technology that, that company with K has come out with, with the stuff we're doing at Moody's and other, other players in the space, as we keep bringing tools that allow you to do this well, that should mean regulators up the standard. And those that don't reach that standard are gonna, are gonna get found out, I hope. Um, are gonna either gonna be put out of business or be made to change their ways and you know become responsible businesses essentially. So so maybe um for the benefit of the listeners, we could lay out all of the ways that companies go about pulling together the necessary information to do these checks. Yeah, right. I think if we just focus on that, that KYB element, because otherwise we'll be here all day talking about all elements of, of customer due diligence. But on, on the KYB, there's the very bad way of you just ask the, the customer or account, hey, you know, what company are you? What's your name? Who owns you? And you just take it at face value. Like really, really bad idea, but does happen, unfortunately. Um, a slight step up would be a number of companies will have questionnaires, which are more structured, provides an audit trail. So at the very least, they can say, 
but look, our counterparty said this, they signed it. What, what are we supposed to do? Not trust them? You know, I would say, yes, exactly that. <laughs> you don't trust them at face value. You, uh, you know, you challenge them, you validate, but it's still better than just taking the first answer. Um, you know, the next improvement is people will manually validate this information. So they might gather it up front. They might go, if they're in the UK, to company's house, uh, they'll go to other registries. They'll, they'll maybe check if the company has a legitimate website. It's quite popular now. The issue with that and doing all that in combination with the questionnaire is although it gets you closer and you can start to use, you know, innate human judgment that, yes, this looks legitimate and it seems right. And probably most of the time you're going to be right, is that a good criminal can can trick you. That's their job. And also it's very slow. And so once you get to a certain scale, you can't do that on every counterparty. And immediately you've then got holes in your your defence. Um, so Moody's a few years ago brought what was called Bureau Van Dyke, and it has the Orbis database, which 400 plus million companies, and it has a lot of this information already put together, all laid out, the corporate structures, et cetera. Um, but Susan, I know you worked with that at Bloomberg, and now, thankfully, we have a, a really great partnership uh, together with, with Company with a K, but maybe you can talk around what's good about that and then how, how you know you go to the next level. Yeah, some of, some of the uh, feedback that I got when I was at Bloomberg and we presented the um, information from Orbis database was around the supporting documentation and where some of that data was coming from and, and being able to augment what was in the database with real-time documents. And I think that for clients, this is going to be an easy way for them to automate and validate um, beneficial owners and entities in a real-time basis along with the documentary evidence all in one location. So they're not creating um, a, a Frankenstein approach to pulling in uh, data and documents and going to two different services. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, I mean, I heard one story for a colleague of mine where it's a, a client of his was, and you know, they were, they were doing their best. I want to stress that this wasn't, you know, because they were trying to skirt anything, but they had a team of people. We talked about the millions that get spent on these refreshes and they were doing the manual lookup, but they're not only were they doing the lookup, they're then screenshotting the different screens of, of certain sources copy, paste, you know, put that in, you know, put it into a PDF, then upload to share drive. So if you imagine doing that for thousands or tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of customers, you start to realize where the gaps, human error, time to value gets lost. So yeah, really excited about working with Susan and the, and the team at company because really it's going to be used correctly via API, one click. Here's the data, it's already laid out. Here are the risks, here's the original documentation. Um, and said, hopefully it raises the standard of what's available. Um, and, you know, to be, be fair on Redshift Legends, we we'll always say other solutions are available. <laughs> of course they are. I might not promote them, but uh, they are available. But I think this one's uh, a real game changer. So it's, it's exciting stuff. And with that manual process that you were just talking about, there is no opportunity for perpetual KYB. Uh, absolutely. In, Tommy, in, in, in your world, sort of as the uh, the 
you take the overview of the industry always. How much is perpetual KYB or KYC bubbling up to you? Well, it's certainly something that gets talked about a lot. <clears throat> I have to say it's generally met with a degree of scepticism in terms of how achievable it is in practice. I, I think there's um, a feeling that maybe uh, there is a gap between what people are promising and, and can practically be delivered at the moment is the sense I get. Mm, it's interesting. I, I probably I can see the point because, yeah, not absolutely everything cannot be automated. Not all data is available that there are some gaps, but a hell of a lot of it is. And I kind of think, you know, I'm making up the percentages here, but if the majority, let's say, let's just say 80%, you could get to perpetual K KYB or KYC or know your whatever. Um, that actually means that all those people that are currently doing it for everyone can just focus on the 20%. Which yeah, is hugely more valuable. Um, but that, that, that's really interesting. That's the sense that you're getting, which shows there's still work to go, still more webinars to do, <laughs> yeah. conferences to speak like, at. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it, I think I think it is going in the right direction, though. Would you agree, Susan? I, I know obviously you've solved for that in in companies use case, but um, in general, obviously it's it's more than just the, the documentation. It's it's everything. But do you say we're on the right trajectory? I, I think so, and I, I can concur with Tom's um, assessment that from an execution perspective, there is, there's not a lot of adoption right now from a monitoring perspective as it relates to KYB, which is what you need for perpetual KYB. Um, but I think we're moving in that direction in the conversations that I've been having with large global financial institutions is giving me a lot of comfort hmm. in that they're looking at this and they want, a, they're, they're desperate for better ways. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I guess the, the, the narrative from the vendor side will always precede what is actually implemented by the, the, the uh, users. Um, and it, it, you can kind of get, caught up in it a little bit can't you and not you can be so close to it you don't really realize what progress has been made but my mm. understanding is if you went back six years a lot of the registries that you would need to have access to weren't sufficiently sophisticated for you to possibly do um what you'd be doing now in terms of um perpetual kyb um, and ongoing monitoring yeah um, I, I think that's you mentioned the you know Yes, the vendors naturally have to be first. Well, the customers might ask for it, but then the vendors need to create it before you get that. I think what we want to see and we've got to figure out is how to close the, the time gap between it being available and then mass adoption, because it does take too long at the moment. As, as I said earlier in the conversation, there's still a lot of institutions out there that don't do ongoing daily delta monitoring of just their screening stuff, which is the easiest thing to be monitoring on. You know, there's no real excuse not to have it for your customers, especially if you, you tune it correctly. Um, so I think it's how, how do we get that? My first sort of solution to that is I think we probably sometimes focus too much on the compliance buyer or that the compliance team and not enough on bringing in, they should be in the room, absolutely, but it's also operations, it's also technology or product owners within the, those that are going to run the, run the process that we need in the room. And I think that's that's something that could be improved. And maybe if you get them all, all at the same time, then you can go, rather than have 
the same meeting four times over two months, you can have one meeting and start to bring the time to delivery down. Um, again, Susan, I don't know your experience, you've got more, more than me, but would you agree with that? Or have you, have you seen some institutions already doing that perhaps? Uh, yeah, and I think that having um, a conversation with the reference data folks really yeah. can help change and, and, and help to push forward the digital transformation that needs to happen in these institutions. Yeah, I think some to go to one of your passions of sales methodologies, I think it is also a little bit need to go more, a little bit more challenger, maybe not all the way because it is regulated and it isn't take a punt on this it's no it's got to work but I, I think there probably is a space for us to uh, as a sector on the on the reg tech side to challenge the market a little bit more and say try and increase the standards you know regardless of what the regulator is doing we should all want to do better anyway rather than just be good enough I, I don't envy uh, one thing I don't envy, and I wonder, Susan, if you can speak to this at all, is how easy is it for you um, when you're a potential buyer of these solutions uh, to to kind of understand or see through all of the noise to what's actually deliverable, um, what is you know companies inevitably kind of um, maybe being a bit aspirational about what they can currently offer. Um, because that, that I, I presume that is the challenge, right? You're saying if, if we can speed up the process of companies um, adopting the technology, that, technology that's available, but I guess you've got to figure out actually what's real and what's marketing. Um, and what you don't want to do is, is, is buy the wrong thing. You're inevitably scared of making mistakes. So I just, I just wonder if you've got any thoughts on that and how, I mean, is it as challenging as I imagine it? Yeah, I mean, certainly the industry, um, the, the buyers want you to be able to boil the ocean. <laughs> it's just yeah. not, it's just not happening. And it's, what I find is having an honest conversation with your buyers about what is and what is not available and what it can and cannot do and what is available from the registers themselves because the the, the data that's coming from the registers varies from register to register the sophistication of the uh from a technology perspective varies um so there all of these factors that go into what a company like company with a K can deliver to the end user. And I think that there is a process around educating the, the buyer about what is truly available from these jurisdictions and being able to pull that all together in a way that will benefit them. I think that goes back to uh, one of David Noble's episodes, Tom. Yeah, I can't remember which one. I think he did two of the buyer perspective. Yeah. And ultimately, just that frank conversation is wanted by buyers who maybe need more of the uh, reg tech salespeople to listen to us, and then maybe they'll, they'll all do it, <laughs> and everyone will be happier. So uh, that's the solution, basically, is everyone to listen to this podcast. <laughs> 
And, and everybody has the pain point. You know, they're willing to talk endlessly. I can get anybody to talk endlessly about the pain points associated with K, KYB, KYC, K, and AML. They will talk your ear off, but it's it, it's getting them to the point where you're both on the same page about what can be delivered and what you what what how you can actually alleviate their pain. Some of their pain points is where you really want to get the conversation going to. Yeah, I think it's that, it's that aiming for better rather than perfect is that that's the, the point we need to all get to is just understand those limitations. But each time we improve a little bit, as long as it's in the right direction, that, that's a positive step and it's worth worth making rather than just going, oh, what we do is in place. But ultimately, everyone says it's broken. <laughs> the CFO is telling us it's broken because it costs too much to hire all these people. The regulators say it's broken because they publish dear CEO letters every you know fairly regularly now. The uh, the practitioners tell us it's broken because they tell oh, we want to be more effective. So it's all the motivation should be there to make a change. Um, I think it's just making sure that the as you say, Susan, the the change we aim for is realistic and then incremental. So it's more going to be a process of more regular change rather than one big sweep that. That solves all of KYC, KYB's problems? It, it, I mean, it's certainly iterative. So we're constantly changing and having clients that are willing to iterate is, is um, helpful. Yeah. I think that's where, sorry, so just to close off that thought, I think that's where these no-code or low-code platforms become interesting. If you start to think about, okay, well, if we're going to, if compliance or KYC or whatever you want to call it is going to be more iterative, you know, within a compliant framework, then those no-code platforms which take out the big implementations because someone can just drag and drop or, or type in what they want to do and then have the machine do it. That, yeah, that, that could be quite exciting. That could be quite transformative if you have the right data um, in those platforms. I don't know uh, how this would work with data. I, I suppose maybe quite simply, but the, I, I think there's a responsibility on the vendor side as well. I, so I was just thinking about how we were wording that there, putting the onus on the buyers to get better uh, at buying reg tech. I mean, there's a responsibility on the vendors to make it easy to uh, ascertain, does this company do or solve the problem that we want it to? And one of the things that I'm encouraged by uh, lately is it does seem that, I mean, the phrase is product-led sales organization uh, uh, that I'm hearing bandied around a lot, but essentially offering the end user or a potential customer the ability to kind of get quite hands-on uh, with the product and seeing how it operates in a, in a somewhat live environment without a big and costly kind of proof of concept. Um, that seems to be an important, I think, next step in, in making it easier for customers to be, become comfortable and buy. Yeah, it's definitely a big part of it. I think it's always about the how that is set up. I think the idea of, hey, you know, get free access for a day or a week, or whatever. Not a big fan of that. I don't think people use it correctly. I think they, they play around, but they don't actually do an experiment. You think about, a good, you think about good science. Good science is keeping all the variables the same and then changing one at a time. So if you're going to 
compare name screening rather than go, here's a hundred names that I've picked out. That, that's not great. It's not a big enough sample size. You've seeded the names you already go in, expect, you know, knowing what result you're expecting. Whereas if you maybe say, here's my last week of data that was produced in my current system. Here's the stats, here's the metrics. It's big enough sample size or N number. Um, and then you run it through the, you know, through the, the new, new solution or the uh, potential new solution. And then you get the results and then you look at the statistics and then you change another variable. Maybe you change the filter, maybe you change the coverage, maybe you change the tuning. Um, that's, that's why I think you've got to be hands-on, but you've got to know that you're going to do it in a scientific way. Otherwise, it, it, it's sort of more like a, a consumer app where you're just playing around with stuff. And it's, you know, that B2C businesses can afford to throw stuff against the wall. And as long as there's enough conversion, it's fine. I think in this B2B world, it needs to be a little bit more precise. Um, but I agree with your sentiment that, you know, people should be getting their hands on approach and understanding it rather than buying off a, a nice PowerPoint or a good demo. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I certainly see a lot of hand-holding during the entire process. It's, it's not sufficient to just give somebody access to a sandbox. Here's your API key and, and, and here's some instructions, go at it. I think that it is helpful to, again, hold hands. There's a level of sophistication around what is being done in the AML and KYB space that really demands that that um, that handholding. They don't want to get a, they, You have to get them to the point where they're feeling comfortable. Mm. That they understand what your technology is, and that it's going to do what they want it to do. Susan, how do UBO registries play into all of this? Yeah, so on January 10th, 2020, the EU countries were required to go live with the UBO registers in, um, in the EU. And to date, there are three countries that don't have the registers established yet. They're Hungary, Italy, Lithuania, um, it, the requirement was that they make the registers public. This hasn't really happened. So there have been a number of issues around the deployment of the beneficial ownership registers. However, the, the it obliged entities are required to validate what's in the beneficial ownership registers. And uh, and report discrepancies as well. So this has become a huge challenge, but because the information is spotty in the registers, it's been a significant challenge. And I think that we're going to see, you know, this evolving and certainly in the US with the Corporate Transparency um, uh, Act, we're also going to see the deployment of um, a, a beneficial ownership register, but that is not going to be public. So it'll be interesting to see how all of this unfolds. But I can say that the obliged entities who are doing business in Europe have a, um, a keen interest in following what's going on with the beneficial ownership registers. Some countries 
have made it public, some are not public. Um, some have an automated connection so that they have structured data, some have unstructured data, in which case you have to pull in some OCR information to provide to the end user. Um, it, it, it's, it, it's gonna be interesting to see how all of this unfolds and how right now it's very challenging for a lot of the obliged entities uh, who are doing business in, in Europe to meet with the demands of the regulation. Yeah, I think, so I'll echo back, oh, so heart back to what we were talking about earlier, directionally it's right. You know, it's a good thing saying, yes, you need to have these registries and the US bringing in something for the first time really. Um, but the next question is an execution <laughs> and the quality. And then we've got to also keep our eyes on those registries not becoming corrupted, um, either by people who have power over them or just simply by poor processes that, that you know, uh, go into making them. You think that one of the big criticisms of Companies House, which is often looked at as like, oh, it's super transparent, very easy to submit whatever data you want. Yeah, and that, that regularly gets called out by, by, again, Graham Barrow in terms of who I follow on LinkedIn. Um, so directionally good, a lot of work to go. Um, but I think that's where the role of RegTech really is, is to try to help solve some of those problems, you know, take some of that raw input and then make something a little bit more meaningful out of it. Which hopefully what, what we're doing with Orbis and company, with okay, um, as well as other providers as well. Very good. Susan, Alex, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to come in and talk to us about all of this. Really appreciate your input as always. Susan, thank you. Uh, thank you for joining us for the very first time, and uh, but hopefully not the last. I think to, to sort of wrap up and to beg your forgiveness, Alex and I have previously promised that we're going to do a book review on Moneyland. That is in the works. That's going to happen. We're going to get that out to you before Christmas. So uh, watch this space. Thank you and goodbye. Thank you.